Hey listeners, welcome to another episode on Rising Above Shadows of Abuse, Raza, with Grace Oham. Freedom doesn't mean free, part two. Women may not be considered a minority as they account for half the population of the planet, yet Retrogressive legislation has undoubtedly been used to target women's rights disproportionately. It is obvious to everyone who cares to look and shouldn't even need to be stated that similar legislation has not been introduced elsewhere in the world that disproportionately targets the rights of men. In the last episode of Raza, we looked at the consequences, particularly for women, on the overruling on Real versus Wade by the U.S. Supreme Court and the possibility that there may be more equally damaging legislation to come that disproportionately affects marginalized minorities, not just in the U.S. and Europe, but elsewhere in the world. As part of a rollback of progressive legislation that has taken place over the past half a century, rights establishing freedoms and liberties are not necessarily a series of progressive upward advances promoted by benign leaderships open to the idea of a better world for all that are irrevocably set in stone but are continually threatened by retrogressive political or religious movements often promoted by populist democratically elected leaders who then enacted legislation designed to undermine that very democracy they used to gain power as can be seen around the world Where conservative views and opinions in societies are predominant, any form of change that upsets the cherished order are perceived as a threat, even if these societies are confronted with drought, famine, conflict and a breakdown in civil structures. In the West, those who have benefited the most from secure employment, generous pensions and a generally high standard of living are reluctant to relinquish any of these advantages despite many of them having grown up and worked in an era completely different to the one we are now living through, and almost certainly will in the not-too-distant future. As the recent attempted murder of the writer Salman Rushdie at a literary event in New York State underlines, no one is really free from retribution once they have been targeted, even though, as in his case, he felt that his life was no longer under threat. Rushdie had a fatwa. An authorization to kill someone else. In this case, an accusation of blasphemy issued against him after the publication of the Satanic Verses in 1989 and spent the next decade in hiding and being protected by the police and security services. Yet before this fundamentalist, death threats was issued by the then political and religious supreme leader of Iran, Ayatollah Khomeini. Rushdie was an outspoken critic of persecution and oppression around the world and a committed supporter of women's rights. Ritualic misogynistic abuse of women had increased exponentially over the past decades due to specifically to the rise of the internet and the ability for perpetrators to hide under the cloak of anonymity. In an interview given to the German news magazine Stern two weeks before the near-fatal attack, He said his life would have been in a lot more danger if social media had been around at the time he wrote the satanic verses. Luckily, we didn't have the internet back then. The Iranians had sent the fawa to the mosques by fax, he said. He then added, nowadays my life is very normal again. 
Yet it was clear that Rushdie was well aware of the dangers facing anyone who dared speak out against the majority consensus and who expressed opinions that were perceived as a threat to the prevailing view of what was right. Those that felt threatened because their opinions were not shared by others. Anyone was therefore a potential target for extremists if they happened to express or share views likely to antagonize an online anonymous cyber vigilante. We live in scary times. That's true, even though I always tell people, don't be afraid. But the bad thing is that death threats have become more normal. Not only politicians get them, even American teachers who take certain books. Look at how many guns there are in America. The existence of all these weapons in itself is scary. I think a lot of people today live with similar threats to the ones I had back then. And the fax machines they used against me is like a bicycle rather than a Ferrari compared with the internet. The 1980s was a decade that saw the beginning of the breakdown of traditional political and moral boundaries, an unraveling with which we are still coming to terms. The FAWA issued against Rushdie revealed the need for greater policing of speech. It's worth recalling how extraordinary in contemporary t- terms was the response to the 1989 FAWA. Not only was Rushdie forced into hiding, but bookshops were firebombed, translators and publishers murdered. A poet's work, one of the characters in Salman Rushdie's The Satanic Verses Observe, is to name the unnameable, to point at frauds, to take sides, start arguments, shape the world and stop it from going to sleep. And if rivers of blood flow from the cuts, his verses inflict, the narrator adds, then they will nourish him. The satanic verses was, he wrote while in hiding, a love song to a mongrel souls, a work that celebrates hybridity, impurity, intermingling, the transformation that comes of new and unexpected combinations of human beings, cultures, ideas, politics, movies, songs. Many critics of the satanic verses believe that Intermingling with a different culture, we inevitably weaken and ruin their own. I am of the opposite opinion. Asked what made him afraid now, Rushdie said, In the past, I would have said religious fanatism. I no longer say that. The biggest danger facing us right now is that we lose our democracy. Since the Supreme Court's abortion verdict, I have been seriously concerned that the U.S. wouldn't manage that, that the problems are irreparable and the country will break apart. Today's greatest danger facing us is this kind of cryptofascism that we see in America and elsewhere. After the recent attack, Rushdie may decide to reconsider his remark regarding the downgrading of religious fanaticism as a fundamental threat to democracy, not least because it is but one aspect of the forces of autocracy and consolidated power ranged against it. The ruling of attorney Roe v. Wade illustrates that the Supreme Court's decision does not represent the vast majority of the American public's view on abortion rights, even among conservatives and religious groups. This attitude was exemplified by the voters of Kansas in a recent ballot where they sent a resounding message to protect abortion rights when 60% voted to keep the status quo. In a deeply conservative state 
with ties to the anti-abortion movement, it would have allowed the Republican-controlled legislature to tighten restrictions or ban the procedure outright had the vote gone the other way. Anti-abortion lawmakers decided to have the vote to coincide with the state's August primary, arguing they wanted to make sure it got the focus, though others saw it as an obvious attempt to boost their chances of winning. The Kansas ballot was the first test of voters' resentment after the court's decision in June that overturned the constitutional rights to abortion, providing an unexpected result with potential implication for the upcoming midterm elections and other conservative states deciding to hold a ballot on the issue. It was a significant defeat for the anti-abortion movement, emboldened by the overturning of the 1973 legal landmark and a victory for the abortion rights advocates. This vote makes clear what we know. The majority of Americans agree that women should have access to abortion and should have the right to make their own health care decisions, President Joe Biden said in a statement. After calling on Congress to restore the protections of Rio in federal law, Biden added, and the American people must continue to use their voices to protect the right to women's health care, including abortion. The Kansas vote also provided a warning to Republicans who had celebrated the Supreme Court ruling and were moving swiftly with abortion bans or near bans in nearly half the states. Kansas bluntly rejected anti-abortion politicians' attempts at creating a reproductive police state, said Kimberly Inez Maguire, Executive Director of Unite for Reproduction and Gender Equity. Today's vote was a powerful rebuke and a promise of the mountain resistance. Any amendment to the Constitution of Kansas would have declared that the state does not grant the right to abortion, overturning a state Supreme Court's decision in 1929, which declared that access to abortion is a fundamental right under the state's Bill of Rights, preventing a ban and potentially thwarting legislative efforts to enact new restrictions. The referendum was closely watched as a barometer of liberal and moderate voters' anger over the Supreme Court's ruling scrapping the nationwide right to abortion. The failure of the ballot to achieve the desired outcome for those that brought it was additionally significant because Kansas has a predominant anti-abortion movement that targeted a clinic that was one of the few in the U.S. known to do abortions late in the pregnancy. It was run by Dr. George Teeler, who was murdered by an anti-abortion extremist in 2009. Activists were responsible for organizing Summer of Mercy protests in 1991 that eventually led abortion opponents to take over the Kansas Republican Party and make the legislature more conservative. Pro-choice groups predicted that anti-abortion organizations and lawmakers behind the ballot would push quickly for an abortion ban if voters approved it, although the measures supporters refused to be drawn on whether they would pursue a ban. The Kansas vote is the start of what could be a long-running series of legal battles in the months and years ahead, where lawmakers are more conservative on abortion than governors or state courts. But it is now clear that the majority of people, even in traditionally conservative states, support the right to abortion. In Kansas, both sides together spent more than $14 million on their respective campaigns. 
Abortion providers and abortion rights groups were major donors to those advocating for no change to the law, while Catholic diocese heavily funded the proposed constitutional amendment. The state had had strong anti-abortion majorities in its legislature for 30 years. Voters have regularly elected Democratic governors, including Laura Kelly in 2018. She opposed the proposed amendment, saying changing the state constitution could throw the state back into the dark ages. Mel Hoffman is an American journalist, activist, and healthcare pioneer who established one of the country's first abortion centers. She has been a vociferous campaigner and advocate in supporting women's reproductive choice and opposing attacks on abortion rights and access. The threats against Salman Rushdie in the late 1980s and the recent attempt on his life were also encountered by Hoffman and her colleagues when she opened her clinic before and after the landmark legislation that legalized abortion. Since the early 1970s, her defining mantras has been freedom is not free. And if men could get pregnant, abortion would be a sacrament. Fifty years ago, Hoffman was on the front line of the battle to secure legal abortions for American women, opening one of the first abortion clinics in the country. But now, with Roe vs. Wade overturned, the need for women to travel across states for the procedure has once again returned, with men arriving at a clinic in Queens, New York. As Hoffman told Channel 4 News recently, after Roe vs. Wade was overturned, I was angry for five minutes and it was back to work. She further explained her reason behind opening the first clinic thus. Women would race into hospital after attempting self-abortions. They had something inside them that they didn't want. In other words, these women were going to be seriously injured or even die unless they had a safe place to have a termination. Her initial research in the late 1960s uncovered the significant fact that three quarters of all abortion are with women on low incomes and many didn't want the baby because they couldn't afford one. This economic reality is rarely mentioned, if at all, by pro-life campaigners not only in the US but around the world. Hoffman has been outspoken in her views on the opposition both she, other activists and indeed all women faced in the years leading up to the legislation that was finally enacted in 1973. Despite President Reagan's war on abortion when he was governor of California between 1967 and 1975, feminists were able to influence the media. The New York Times reported in 1970 that a dramatic liberalization of public attitudes and practices regarding abortions appeared to be sweeping the country. In the two and a half years, between July 1970, when New York's new abortion law took effect, and January 1973, when the Supreme Court's Roe v. Wade decision legalized the procedure everywhere, 350,000 women came to New York for an abortion. Shortly after New York State legalized abortion in 1970, three years before the Supreme Court's Roe v. Wade decision legalized abortion nationally, Hoffman helped establish one of the country's first ambulatory abortion centers, Flushing Women's Medical Center in 1971. 
It was the forerunner of Choices Women's Medical Center, which Hoffman founded and served as president and CEO. Choice is a full-service healthcare provider offering gynecological services, prenatal care, family care, transgender health care, telemedicine, medical health and other services. Hoffman co-founded the National Abortion Federation in 1976, the first professional organization of abortion providers in the U.S., and was its first president. She also founded the New York Pro-Choice Coalition in 1985. She considered many standard medical practices of the day sexist, evasive, and paternalistic. In response, she developed many of the patient-centered tenants and practices that have since become standards of female and feminist health care and implemented them at Flushing Women's. Hoffman's theory of patient power led to now standards practices, such as having another staff member in the room with a doctor and patient at all times, developing the concept of informed consent, having other women's counselors rather than doctors provide emotional support and answer patients' questions during abortions, using patients' abortion-based clinic visits as an opportunity to provide sexual health education as well as counseling on birth control options. Yet her stance wasn't without serious risks to the staff and patients at the center where the threat of violence, injury and death were never far away. Over the past 40 or so years, incidents including horrendous attacks against the facilities and people involved in making it possible for women to have safe abortions have proliferated. I should have seen it though because I was going to funerals of people who were murdered. In the late 1980s, two doctors and three clinic workers lost their lives to fundamentalists. She recalls the service for her friend David Gurn in 1993, an obstetrician who performed abortion and who was shot to death outside his clinic in Pasacola by a fundamentalist Christian from a fringe anti-abortion group headed by a former member of the Ku Klux Klan. Yet, the anti-abortion lobby never went away and continued to pressurize various incoming presidents to repeal Roe v. Wade. Hoffman states, as the war against abortion continued, the pro-choice movement lost ground daily and clinics were closing. I became even more convinced that the right to abortion should have been articulated under the 13th Amendment, making reproductive freedom a universal human right. Then in 2003, President George W. Bush signed the Partial Birth Abortion Ban Act, the first legislation to criminalize an abortion procedure since Rose v. Wade. The law forbade the procedure even if a woman's health was endangered. Outraged by this disrespect for women's rights and well-being, I attended a veteran feminist of America event honoring Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg and spoke with her about this. Her answer, I have criticized the court's decision in Roe versus Wade, not of course for the result. I think the notion is that it isn't just some private act. It is a woman's right to control her own life. The morality of Bush's decision had been defined by the religious class. Even as supporters said that despite abortion being legal, it would never really be objectively moral. Women who had had abortions remained victims at best and mothers at worst. Abortion was ever a tragedy, a necessary evil, something to be kept private and about which to feel ashamed.
Freedom of speech is not commensurate with the populist, fundamentalist ideology, unless it is the populist advocate's definition of free speech. What all these ideologies have in common is the ability to twist and turn any argument to their advantage, irrespective of any obvious contradictions or hypocrisies and anti-abortionists. This exemplifies their determination to deprive women of the right to control their own bodies. As stated in part one last week, the pro-life lobby insists that the rights of an unborn fetus is sacrosanct, yet in the US, the right to bear arms as supposedly cited in an interpretation of the Constitution, regularly results in school massacres. That it is these firearms that are used in the killings is overlooked and therefore excused. The blame placed firmly on the mental state of the perpetrators, the so-called bad guys, and they are always men. This patently obvious dichotomy on the supposed sanctity of life counts for nothing in the ideology to those who see any efforts towards gun control as an attack on freedom. Toxic online culture is the new front line for systematic abuse where women are the primary targets of anonymous men who inhale power by having the advantage of anonymity and the confidence that comes from what they feel is untouchability. As is the root of this abuse and oppression towards women and minorities is the instability and insecurity of men who refuse to accept equality by any definition. What will the future bring in an increasingly authoritarian, illiberal, fundamentalist world where populist governments run by autocrats and dictators elected by a democratic system seek to overthrow it before enacting draconian legislation intended to overthrow hard-won freedoms and liberties? Salman Rushdie did offer a glimmer of hope and optimism for the future. However, if the swing towards autocracy and dictatorship compounded by seemingly eternal global conflict, the effects of the climate crisis and economic uncertainty could be overcome and democracy could prevail, there was a positive alternative for the challenging times ahead. In the recent interview, Stern asked him if he had any advice for people who were scared of where the world is heading, and he had this to say. I believe something very good is happening in the young generation. It is much more inclined to activism. We are seeing a generation grow of age that we urgently need right now, a combative one. We need people who can organize themselves and people who are prepared to fight. Fighters for a society worth living in instead of hoping things turn out for the best. If you've enjoyed this episode, kindly subscribe, comment, leave a review, and see you on our next episode. This has been Grace Upper for Rising Above Shadows of Abuse. Raza! If you've got any questions or inquiries, you can get in touch rising above shadows of abuse at gmail.com or our social media platforms rising above shadows of abuse at tiktok rising above shadows of abuse twitter rising above abuse youtube 
rising above shadows of abuse.